0: It's a great honor to be here with you, and I'm going to be talking about uh, the New Testament before the New Testament. Uh, Michael Kruger, uh, who's written several helpful books on the canon, says the, quote, dominant view today is that the New Testament is an extrinsic phenomenon, a later ecclesiastical development imposed on books originally written for another purpose. At a more popular level, and I know it's dated, but Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code uh, argued that Constantine suppressed the earlier Gospels and compiled uh, the New Testament canon on his own to uh, solidify his authority. Uh, that myth has uh, popped out over and over again in the popular discourse and uh, I continue to run into it talking with people uh, who are struggling with the faith. And so I wanted to address it uh, this afternoon. The reality is is that uh, Constantine had nothing to do with the New Testament canon. Uh, the New Testament canon was not established at the Council of Nicaea uh, that he called. But actually it was decades later that we get the first definitive list of the New Testament books at the Third Council of Carthage uh, in A.D. 397. I'd like to attack this problem in three parts. We're going to begin with the Gospels, and uh, we're going to go on to the Book of Acts and Paul's letters, and then we'll finally look at the general letters uh, and the Book of Revelation. Part 1, the Fourfold Gospel. This is the front matter of uh, the original publication of the King James Version. And uh, if you look, there are the four evangelists at the four corners uh, of the picture. At the top left, uh, you have Matthew, and next to him is a human figure. Uh, To the right on the top there is Mark, uh, and next to him is a lion. Below on the left is Luke, and associated with him is an ox. And then finally, there's John, who's associated with an eagle. Uh, If you go to cathedrals in Europe, very often where the priest preaches, there will be an eagle uh, carved out at the podium. And that is an homage to John, uh, who was viewed as the spiritual gospel uh, and was called the theologian uh, because his thought would just soar uh, like an eagle. And so uh, the artists that put this together and King James and the committee that put the King James version together, uh, it was very important for them to open up their Bible uh, with this symbolism. And this imagery is actually ancient uh, and we can trace it back um, hundreds of years. In fact, 800 years earlier, Uh, This is the Book of Kells, and this is the most precious uh, book in Ireland. Uh, I was just told that you can go to the Irish uh, Community Center on Central, uh, Cultural Center on Central, and they have uh, the Book of Kells, a whole display uh, about this uh, codex. Uh, But what you'll see, and uh, this is dated to around A.D. um, 800, is that you have the four evangelists uh, with the same association uh, of the animals and the human face. We uh, go back 600 more years uh, to the time of Irenaeus of Lyon, and he speaks of a tetramorph or fourfold gospel. And for him, the four gospels have already become an authoritative collection uh, that he uses uh, in his worship. Uh, interestingly, because you've all read the Gospels and you know that there are really interesting differences in the four accounts, the early church did not struggle with the differences. They celebrated them. And Irenaeus says they are fourfold in form, but they are held together by one spirit. He looked to the opening of the book of Ezekiel, which in many ways is recapitulated in the book of Revelation, where the four angels uh, spend eternity worshiping God. And they felt that the, uh, the four Gospels served a similar role in that they, like the angels, were witnessing to the truthfulness of how God was revealing himself in the Gospel message. I just want to go back briefly and point out something. If you look at the middle top of that illustration, you will see the lamb, representing Jesus Christ. And then just above, uh, you'll see the dove, uh, representing the Holy Spirit. And then at the very top is the Hebrew. It's hard to see, but it's Yahweh. Oops, it's not Yahweh. Sorry, Dr. Williams. (laughs) Uh, And this, of course, is the formal presentation of the triune God at Jesus' baptism. And so the idea is, is that the four evangelists uh, give witness not just to Jesus as the Son of God, but they actually give witness uh, to the triune God. Irenaeus uh, warns the reader about false gospels that depart from the deposit of faith, the apostolic interpretation of the person uh, and work of Christ. Maybe you heard of Nag Hammadi uh, in 1945, uh, several codices that were discovered that may have been buried by a priest or a monk. Uh, and in them were a number of uh, apocryphal writings or apocryphal gospels um, that uh, we didn't even have uh, until they were rediscovered. A few years ago, uh, National Geographic caused a stir among the Christian community uh, by publishing the Gospel of Judas. And what was ironic to me when the news broke was that Irenaeus, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, warned us that this gospel was a bunch of garbage. (laughs) I guess I was worried that maybe Irenaeus was wrong, and I read the gospel for myself, and I would just encourage you to read it as well, and you can make your own decision. But he said, they declared Judas the traitor, was thoroughly acquainted with these things and that he alone, knowing the truth, as no no others did, accomplished the mystery of the betrayal, they produce a fictitious history of this kind which they style the Gospel uh, of Judas. And when you read the Gospel of Judas, all the other apostles are wrong. They don't know Jesus. Only Judas, who is his true friend. Uh, And you can make your own decision about that. Around the time of the Gospels uh, being published was the rise of the Codex. The Codex was a remarkable move in technology. Uh, Before this uh, uh, modality, uh, writings were written primarily on scrolls. And uh, they worked, but the problem with scrolls is they were difficult to travel with. uh, They were easily crushed, and they were typically 30, 35 feet long, and you could only put, say, the Gospel of Luke on one scroll. Uh, The technology, as far as we can tell, was developing in Rome around the time uh, that the Gospels were coming together. And the Christians uh, were early adopters of this technology. And so it allowed all four Gospels to be collected together. And it allowed us to cross-reference the Gospels, uh, to be able to read all three or four or two uh, parallel accounts uh, in the Gospels reinforcing this idea of a collection. This is Papyrus 45, which is also called Chester Beattie 1. We can date it to around AD 250. In it are the Gospels, uh, but not in the order of your Bibles. Uh, It's the so-called Western order, where the Gospels go Matthew, John, Luke, Mark, Uh, And then it also has the book of Acts in it. What's interesting about the logical flow of these Gospels is that Matthew and John were known as eyewitnesses to Jesus. Uh, They walked with Jesus uh, in his historical ministry. However, the early church knew that Mark and Luke were not eyewitnesses. I mean, Luke admits as much uh, in his preface uh, to his Gospel. And so there's a clear logic to the order of these Gospels, beginning with the two eyewitnesses and then going on to associates of apostles. Justin Martyr, uh, who was born around A.D. 110, uh, near where Jesus uh, talked with the Samaritan woman, describes the four Gospels as the, quote, memories of the apostles, but also of those who followed them. We know from his writings that he had access to the four Gospels. Um, He alludes to the Gospel of John or the account with Nicodemus. And what's interesting is he often harmonizes the Gospels when he cites them, as if he was already reading them as a fourfold collection. And what you'll notice in this quote is he follows that Western order that I just showed you meaning he mentions uh, the memories of the apostles. Um, Mark was associated with the apostle Peter. Um, but I'm sorry, he mentions the memories of the apostles, Matthew and John, but then he also mentions those who followed after them or followed them, and that would naturally correlate with Mark uh, and Luke. Uh, and so here we have an early father um, aware of the four Gospels, I would argue. Justin goes on and he gives us one of the earliest descriptions of early Christian worship. Uh, he says, On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. The memories of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. <laughs> Then when the reader or lector ceases, the president, through a sermon, admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. So, so here you see uh, in the Roman church, uh, in the corporate worship, the reading of the Gospels and then sermons that were taken out of them. Clement of Alexandria was an early discipler. You could also call him a catechist. It was his responsibility given to him by the bishop in Alexandria to prepare believers for baptism. And he would take people through the essentials of the faith. It was these disciples that had to have the discernment to know what books would we bring in as being essential to what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And Clement uh, refers to the four, quote, accepted gospels that were handed down. And if you look at his dates, he's referring then to an earlier generation, and the generation before him that handed them to him, right, would be the generation right next to the publication of the four Gospels. Origen took over Clement's job. He was also a catechist in Alexandria. And Origen, even though he was aware of apocryphal Gospels, and he even cites some on occasion, he describes the four Gospels as, quote, not spoken against, meaning this was a reliable witness to Jesus Christ. Serapion of Antioch uh, goes even farther. On the Gospel of Peter, one of the Apocryphal Gospels, he says, We, brothers, receive both Peter and the other apostles as Christ, But we reject the writings that falsely go under their names, since we are experienced and know that such were not handed down to us. So there you get uh, a church father using discernment and saying, we will not go with pseudepigraphal gospels, gospels that were uh, falsely attributed to apostolic authority. One of the things that I found, oh, I need to be doing my clicker. I'm sorry. I'll keep up with it. These are photos of um, Clement, Origen, and Serapion. There you go. When you look at the apocryphal Gospels that have surfaced in the last half century, one of the interesting things is that they are not copied with the canonical Gospels. What I mean is you don't find a codex that has the Gospel of Thomas between Mark and Matthew. Uh, They were kept separate, and I can't find any evidence that these apocryphal gospels were used in corporate worship in the early church. They seem to be esoteric writings uh, that were standing behind Gnosticism and other heretical views. Now, granted, some of the apocryphal gospels are not necessarily heretical. They kind of reflect a popular piety like the Proto-Evangelium of James, um, but they were not included and they were not copied along with the four accepted Gospels. Can I go farther back into the first century around the time of the apostles themselves? I think we can. Papias was a disciple of John the Elder, an apostle. And in the anti-Marcionite prologue, uh, it 's claimed that he actually dictated john 's words in the fourth Gospel, which is an interesting claim. He wrote down what John said uh, for the fourth Gospel. Um, he cites John, uh, the apostle, and I want to be careful here. what i 'm reading you is a citation from eusebius 's church history citing Papias. Um, Papias's writings are no longer extant, um, but we get access to his writings through the church historian. Um, but there's no reason to d- to doubt that he is accurately uh, reflecting what Papias had written in this earlier doc- in this earlier document. Anyway, this is a remarkable quote. John was asked about the other gospels on one occasion. And Papias remembers him saying, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately everything he remembered. Now what's interesting is he goes on to say, but not in order, (laughs) because he wasn't there. And that may give you some insight into why John's gospel often has a different chronology from Mark's gospel and the way that he arranges the order uh, of events. And then he goes on and he says Matthew composed the oracles or the sayings of Jesus in the Hebrew language, and each person interpreted them uh, as best he could. So there were some in Papias's and John's community that probably uh, had criticized uh, these earlier Gospels, but John actually defends them. And so what we have is even though he'll go on to write his own Gospel He also shows respect for what had gone before. Now here I'm going to give you something that's coming out of some research I'm engaged in right now. I I don't have the time to prove it. I'm just going to present it. (laughs) Um, But there have been some monographs that have come out recently, and I just read a paper at the Society of Biblical Literature on this topic. Um, Look carefully at Luke's preface. Since many attempted to arrange for themselves a narrative concerning matters which are fulfilled among us, just like the eyewitnesses who were from the beginning and became ministers of the word handed over to us, it also seemed appropriate for me, who has followed everything accurately for a significant period of time, to write in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might recognize the, the truth of the words by which you were taught. So here, Luke says that he's not an eyewitness, but that he accessed and, and used as sources those that did know Jesus personally. For often, when you read commentaries on Luke, they speculate uh, that maybe the this earlier eyewitness source may have been Q., uh, may have been Mark, but there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't be referring to Mark, who wrote down the memories of Peter. Matthew, uh, those of you who are familiar with the Gospels know that a lot of the wording in Matthew occurs in Luke's Gospel as well. And scholars argue that they both used a source that they call Q. Well, guess what? We've never found it, and maybe I don't believe in it, Peter. Uh, <laughs> Until I see it. Uh, And so, excuse me. And so, it seems more natural that Luke, uh, in his preface, is basically referring to the eyewitness gospels and that he used them uh, as a source for his own composition. I would argue that he even was aware of John's gospel and would include that there. All right, Paul. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be qualified, having been equipped for every good work. And then he goes on and he says, until I come, give attention to the reading. And of course there I would think he's referring to the Scriptures to exhortation uh, and teaching. Now, this is the interesting thing. Uh, in First Timothy uh, chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says... Here he cites Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he uses the conjunction chi in Greek. And what he does here is a familiar exegetical device that's called Gezeresheba. And you'll find this throughout the New Testament where the writer will couple two different scriptures together because they share a common theme. And what he's doing here is he's taking uh, an Old Testament principle, uh, Deuteronomy 25.4, and he's linking it to a word of Jesus. But he uses the word graphe, which refers to Scripture, uh, presumably for both. Do you see that? And so here you have Paul acknowledging uh, the authority of a word of Jesus, uh, linking it, if not equating it, to the Mosaic law. He goes on and he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Doesn't that remind you a little bit of the context of Matthew 18? uh, The second stage of church discipline. So, what's going on here? Something that's interesting that I noticed is that when Paul cites Jesus, it actually matches Luke's version It's what Jesus says in Luke's gospel. Matthew actually has Jesus say, the laborer is worthy of his food. However, the allusion or citation, two or three witnesses, seems to be from Matthew's gospel, where we get the church discipline passage. And by the way, Luke doesn't have that tradition in his gospel. Whenever Paul cites Jesus, it's usually word for word what we find in Luke's gospel. And that should not surprise us because tradition tells us that Luke and Paul were associates. And so it's possible that Luke may have derived some of his uh, Jesus tradition uh, from Paul himself. The simplest explanation here is that Paul appeals to Matthew's gospel but cites Jesus from memory. Matthew is published and Luke is not. Uh, at this time, according to uh, my synoptic or my analysis of the synoptic problem. Irenaeus claims that Matthew wrote his gospel while Paul and Peter were still alive uh, in the late 50s uh, or early 60s. So does that make sense? So it seems that Paul is appealing to a recognized published gospel, (laughs) uh, but he's actually citing Jesus the way that he had inherited that tradition. Uh, which would eventually be reflected in Luke's wording in his gospel, which was probably published later. In any case, he acknowledges uh, the gospels of Scripture and appeals to their authority. Part two, Acts and Paul's letters. The Muratorian canon is our earliest list of New Testament writings. We also call it a fragment because it doesn't have all the books in the New Testament in it. The Muratorian Canon says the acts of all the apostles were written in one book. For, quote, most excellent Theophilus, Luke, compiled the individual events that took place in his presence as he plainly shows by admitting the martyrdom of Peter as well as the departure of Paul from the city, uh, meaning Rome, uh, when he journeyed uh, to Spain. Now, we get, like I said, this early Christian association with Luke with this book of Acts, but there were actually many Acts of the Apostles circulating in the early church. Um, but only Luke's was recognized as canonical. And when you read the book of Acts, you see that he's only summarizing the first three decades of the church's history, uh, ending around A.D. 60. Another Acts is the so-called Acts of Peter. And in this book, um, and according to this book, Simon Magus uh, apparently didn't give up uh, after Peter rebukes him uh, in Samaria. And he, he travels to Rome... And he actually begins to levitate over the city until he's downed uh, by the uh, the prayers of Peter. Do you want that in your Bible? (laughs) Luke has special credentials. He already had authored the recognized gospel, one of the four gospels. He was an associate of an apostle, Paul. Origen claims that Luke wrote his gospel for Gentiles with Paul's praise and Acts. Interesting. He was also an eyewitness, we think, of Paul's ministry. The reason we believe this is because if you read the opening of Luke and Acts, you'll notice that he opens in the first person. He says, we... And then beginning in Acts chapter sixteen verse ten, he begins to use the first person pronoun we as he tells the story uh, with his escapades with the apostle Paul. Why make up his presence in the second book if it was not necessary to do so uh in the first? Meaning in Luke's in the gospel he admits he was not an eyewitness. And so I would assume he would be truthful about his experiences with the Apostle Paul. So I think it's still safe to say that uh, he knew Paul, and because of his association with the Apostle, his writings were recognized as Scripture. Luke is special because it forms a bridge with the New Testament. In some of our early manuscripts, it's recorded with the Gospels, And in other manuscripts, it's recorded with Paul's letters and even the general letters. One of the things that's interesting is not only does Acts introduce Paul's letters, you'll notice that he gives you information about many of the cities that Paul writes to in his letters. But did you notice that in the book of Acts, there's also smaller roles for Peter, James, and John? And so it ends up being an introduction to the apostolic period, giving readers a sense of context. Turning to Paul's letters, this is a Papyrus 46. In our earliest uh, manuscripts, or witnesses of Paul's writings, one of the things that's interesting is that his letters are in a collection already. Um, I've run into some that thought that the early church just kind of gathered a letter of Paul here and a letter there and kind of cobbled together what ended up becoming the Pauline uh, collection in the New Testament, but they were actually a collection uh, much earlier than that. What's interesting is that there were the, the notations in this papyrus suggest that the codex was read communally with P forty five which has uh, the Gospels and Acts in it. So what that suggests is um, this was used for liturgical or communal uh, worship in some sense. When you read the church fathers, it's interesting. Over and over again, they will say Jesus and Paul. Jesus and Paul. Jesus and Paul. Uh, For them, it was perfectly natural to associate Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Uh, with their Lord Jesus Christ. It's only modern scholarship that has sought to kind of separate uh, the two. If you read Paul's letters, did you notice that he encourages uh, in the end of some of his letters to have his letters copied and read in other communities, right? And so the idea that Paul was writing only to a very specific situation, um, I think that's already being... Um, that's, that's, that, that already is an insufficient explanation in Paul's own letters. Uh, and so it was perfectly natural that when Paul died, his disciples would collect the letters, perhaps the letters he wanted to be published as a collection, and distribute those through the church. Ignatius, I want you to look at the date of his birth Um, We're not sure exactly when he was born. Some scholars put his date of birth to around A.D. 50. but But we're getting very close to the apostolic period here. In fact, it overlaps. When you read his letters, which are collected in the apostolic fathers, you can see how the bishops stand in for the apostles, but they don't have the authority of the apostles. Ignatius writes, "I do not give you orders like Peter and Paul. They were apostles. And when you read his letters, he cites and alludes to Paul's writings as well as other parts of the New Testament, particularly Matthew. And uh, obviously, there uh, you see him recognizing Jesus and Paul and their unique and um, the, the writings that reflect their, their views." I do need to address Hebrews. Hebrews is an interesting book. It has a unique set of problems. The first thing is that, um, there's no, that the writer doesn't identify himself. There's no name, so it's technically anonymous. Also, we get a very vague title that comes later, To the Hebrews. <laughs> so the early church didn't, really didn't know what to do with it they saw that the style was quite different from Paul. And so you get an array of opinions of it being composed by Barnabas. Uh, That's what Tertullian believed. Clement of Rome suggests Hippolytus of Rome. Luke, um, or Clement of Alexandria, suggests that Luke wrote it. And we find other views uh, in the history of the church. Origen is famously cited as writing towards the end of his life, who actually wrote the epistle only God knows. On the other hand, going back to Papyrus 46, one of the interesting things about this collection of Paul's letters is that the book of Hebrews actually comes after the letter to the Romans. Not only that, but we find in the manuscript tradition, the book of Hebrews being uh, always a part of the Pauline collection. And so what we finally get with our canon, and maybe you noticed that you get the 13 letters of Paul and then the book of Hebrews follows. Did you notice that? (laughs) Uh, That goes back to uh, the third council of Carthage with their list. And it was a compromise of sorts, meaning some of the church fathers were uncertain that Paul wrote it, and they were comfortable with the idea that it had come from one of Paul's associates. It is interesting how Timothy is mentioned at the end of Hebrews, and it's it's plausible that that's the Timothy that was beloved by Paul. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that as far back as we can go, the early church kept Hebrews with Paul's letters. But aware, perhaps, of maybe some of the ambiguity, the, early, the church decided to put Hebrews after Paul's 13 letters, um, but still showing an association with them. What's the point I'm trying to make is the church knew that there was some ambiguity about the authorship of Hebrews, but it didn't have any impact on its canonical authority. Does that make sense? So today, sometimes I talk with people and they say, oh, you know, maybe Paul didn't write Hebrews. If that's the case, well, then we should throw it out of the canon. Well, that's anachronistic. The early church knew, and there was already a precedent that you could have associates of apostles writing authoritative inspired literature. Mark and Luke, of course, are a great example of that. Okay, one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews may have... um, then somewhat neglected in the West, uh, it was well used in the East, um, but it's not in the Muratorian canon. It's not mentioned at least. And that could be because of the fragmentary state of the of the canon or the list. What is interesting is that the Donatists and the Novatians read the warning passages, like the one that begins in uh, chapter six. Do you remember those scary passages where if you harden yourself to God, there's just no hope for repentance? (laughs) Well, some of these early radical wings of the church took those passages literally and said, if you walked away from Jesus, you could not repent and you could not be restored uh, to fellowship. Um, Even today, as Christians, we struggle over the meaning of those passages, Um, But it's possible that because of the way that those verses had been maybe abused in the West and in Africa, there may have been some concern about the book. But in any case, it was eventually recognized for what it was, Scripture. Jerome and Augustine advocated for it uh, based on its precedent and the likelihood of the author knowing Paul. Here we have a remarkable uh, passage in Second Peter, which says, Consider the long-suffering of our Lord as salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. He speaks about these matters in all his letters, in which there are things hard to understand, amen, in which the uneducated and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do also with the other, what? Scriptures, right? So here you've got Peter looking back and, and look carefully. He says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. He speaks about these things in what? All his letters is that interesting? We'll talk about the authorship of Second Peter in just a minute. But if this is Petrine, if Peter wrote it or an associate of Peter's wrote it, or an associate wrote it, we have in AD 64 an acknowledgment of Paul's letters as a collection and already being recognized uh, as Scripture. It's pretty remarkable. Um, Paul would have been executed perhaps shortly before Peter. Uh, during the Neronian persecution. All right. Part three, general letters and revelation. Athanasius uh, gives a list of the New Testament writings that's very close to the Council of Carthage. It's called the 39th Feastal Letter. Um, It was custom for a bishop To write a letter around Passover to, or Easter, to, uh, exhort his flock to godly behavior. And, and in this particular letter, Athanasius felt a burden to clarify what should be read in his churches, uh, in his uh, bishopric. I thought this was interesting. He mentions the four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then after them, the Acts of the Apostles. But look at the order here. And the seven so-called Catholic epistles of the Apostles, namely one of James, two of Peter, then three of John, and after these, one of Jude. And then it's only after that that he mentions Paul's letters. Is that interesting? So in this list... There's a certain primacy given to these general letters. But the point I want to make is that these general letters were already a collection uh, before they were brought into uh, the canonical lists. I do believe that the church had a wisdom in placing James and the other writings after Paul's and after the book of Hebrews. Look at this passage in Galatians. Paul writes, James and Cephas, which is the Aramaic for Peter, James and Cephas and John, the ones who are recognized to be pillars, gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we might preach the gospel to the nations and they to the circumcision Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's accidental that the order of our New Testament after Paul's letters goes James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John? (laughs) It's interesting. And here you've got Paul, and let's be honest, this is a pretty angry letter. It's a pretty radical argument that he's making. He even gets into a bit of a tussle, right, with Peter. Why did I say tussle? I've never said tussle once in my life. <laughs> Peter Williams, you're influencing me. Um, sorry. <laughs> Got in a row. Uh, and even in Galatians, there's a tension between him and James, right? Or, or there's an implied, perhaps, tension, the people that come from James. And yet, in this angry letter, Paul recognizes the pillar authority, of these three earlier apostles. You also wonder if maybe the church was wise to put James after Paul's letter, after Paul's letters, as a kind of balancing uh, of faith and works. Uh, but that's for another discussion. There were some issues with James. Origen cites James 24 times in what survives of his corpus, and he attributes the work to the Lord's brother. And so we get early uh, evidence of the authority of James. And yet Eusebius of Caesarea classes it among the disputed books, the anti-legomena. However, he cites it as genuine. We, we're not sure why some spoke against James. We could make a few guesses, though. There were many writings that were spurious at the time that were attributed to James, and so the church needed to exercise discernment to know that this was the genuine article. Uh, Also, there's little explicit Christology in the book of James. Um, However, I put explicit there because if you read James carefully, much of it is alluding to the Sermon on the Mount or the... Teachings of Jesus that became the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, it's very Christological, and yet it is subtle. <laughs> and uh, there may have been some, like Martin Luther centuries later, that was that were a bit concerned about not enough attention given to Jesus. That's speculation, I don't know. And of course there may have been some view, there may have been some worry that there was a tension with Paul at the time. However, it came to be recognized for what it was, which is authoritative an authoritative writing from Jesus' brother. Uh, did you notice that your New Testament, when it comes to the general letters, it begins with Jude, or excuse me, it begins with James and ends with Jude? You notice that? And then you get Revelation. It's probably not accidental that James and Jude are Jesus' brothers. And so they form sort of bookends uh, to this this collection. Um, And we see this bookend, Inclusio, uh, in many of the earlier manuscripts before the list at the Council of Carthage. Okay. Are you having fun? Is this interesting? (laughs) There were some issues with Jude. Basically, what I'm getting at is when you look at the, the recognition of the New Testament for what it was, I can't find any debate about the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were the fourfold Gospels in a codex, read in the church, can't find any controversy. Paul, he was a Shuin, in <laughs> right? Because he was the apostle for us, unless you're Jewish. Um and he loved the Jews too, but uh he was a shoe in um, no concern about Paul except on the margins and the fringes where you get some some antagonism towards him. It's this third collection that has the most ambiguity, right? And and it took a season of discernment for the church to make sure that all the books that comprise this third section were were legitimate. And when they were, they were recognized as such. Um, But we shouldn't be surprised by that because of the diversity of books in this collection. Does that make sense? And that they were kind of being collected over a period of time. Um, But this is where you get most of the ambiguity. So uh, there were a few issues with Jude. Origen, however, the catechist, says Jude, who wrote a letter of few lines, it is true, but it's filled with the healthful words of heavenly grace. <laughs> Eusebius classifies Jude as a disputed uh, writing, although he acknowledges its liturgical use. Jerome writes in his book, Illustrious, Lives of Illustrious Men, because in it he quotes from the apocryphal book of Enoch, it is rejected by many. Nevertheless, by age and use, it has gained authority and is and is reckoned among the Holy Scriptures. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have students today that are troubled by the quote from Enoch. However, Paul quotes pagans as prophets. And so... <laughs> Um, eventually the church realized that despite that concern about the pseudepigraphal book, First Enoch, being cited, um, it eventually gained its place in the canon, and rightly so, in my opinion. Who wrote Second Peter? Most scholars today doubt Peter wrote Second Peter. I had a hard time finding evangelical scholars that defended Petrine authorship of Second Peter. Um, I had to go back to Donald Guthrie and, of course, Carson, Moo, and Morris, but um, the, the predominant view out there is that um, Second Peter is pseudepigraphal. Origen notes the attribution is doubted, although he does not explain why uh, or who. Yet, he appropriates the letter at least six times in what has come down to us in Latin translation. Jerome registers doubt because of the different style, but suggests Peter used two different secretaries, right? And it's suggested at the end of 1 Peter where he says, I wrote this letter through Sylvanus. One way to interpret that is that Sylvanus was a secretary of sorts that helped Peter express uh, his thoughts. And so Jerome does give a plausible explanation for it. Donald Guthrie suggests the pseudo-Petrine literature made church authorities naturally cautious. Do you remember that Acts of Peter I just showed you? Because Peter was the rock... Uh, the leader of the early movement, it was typical for heretics to grab his name and try to write something underneath it. And so it would be natural for the church to exercise a season of discernment with this book. There is no discussion of Second Peter in the Muratorian canon, but that is also the case for First Peter. It's not mentioned, and there's no evidence that the early church doubted First Peter's authenticity. Again, like I said, the Muratorian canon could also be called the Muratorian fragment. It's incomplete. However, Hippolytus, a prominent leader in the West, appropriates Second Peter, acknowledging its authority. This was surprising to me. Eusebius acknowledges that the majority accepts Second Peter, and he doesn't even place it in his spurious classification like the Apocalypse of Peter and other writings. And so at the end of the day, the church accepted Second Peter and recognized it as such. Who wrote Revelation? If you read Revelation, it does not claim to be uh, an apostle, but the author doesn't present himself as an apostle. And he seems to contrast himself from the son of Zebedee who was part of the twelve in chapter twenty one verse fourteen uh, revelation reads, and the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Some have found it odd that John, being an apostle, would depict himself this depict himself this way. on the other hand, if you read john's gospel, he also refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so maybe the arguments can balance each other. However, Dionysius of Alexandria rejected premillennialism. As far as I can tell, all the church fathers uh, believed in the premillennial reign of Christ. And I know this is not an end times conference. (laughs) But uh, they were all, as far as I could tell, pre millennial. But then you get a backlash against that in the fourth century, uh, particularly in the East. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But Dionysius noticed that the style of Revelation is very different from John's Gospel and the first and the three letters that are attributed to him. And because of these differences, he argued that the fourth Gospel and Revelation were composed by two different Johns. One of the reasons is that there were some that rejected the book of Revelation in opposition to Montanus. Montanus began a prophetic movement uh, where he began to declare things from God as a prophet, and soon two women joined him And all of a sudden, it became this very powerful uh, movement in Asia Minor, specifically in Phrygia. uh, And uh, eventually, the church authorities started to get get nervous about it. In this movement, they appropriated chapter 21 in Revelation, the depiction of the New Jerusalem. And they believed that the New Jerusalem would actually descend from heaven and come down on the Phrygian town of Papuza. And they were declaring this as the word of God. Does this remind you of some end times predictions in our tradition? (laughs) Which are kind of embarrassing. And so people actually sold their homes and left their families and went to this town for the end of time. And it, of course, did not happen And so the church was kind of reeling a bit from that movement, I think. And so there was some, uh, perhaps, prejudice against the the book. Uh, However, the author of Revelation presents himself as an apostle, or excuse me, as a prophet. And Paul, in Ephesians, gives foundational authority to the apostles and the prophets. And if you look carefully in Ephesians, he's not talking simply about the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about contemporary prophets. Also, if you read the opening of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek there could be read two different ways. It could be the revelation about Jesus And of course, the book of Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that actually physically depicts Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So it could be the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it could also be the revelation from Jesus Christ. And your Bible may have a lot of red in it in the book of Revelation. Um, The reason is because Jesus speaks in it, right? And so, in my opinion... Jesus, in a certain sense, is the ultimate author of the book of Revelation. (laughs) And what Jesus says goes. No debate there. So um, also, the writer blesses the reader and those that hear. Uh, in Revelation one three, he says, Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and who keep the things which stand written in it because the season is near. Do you see how he presupposes that his book would be read in corporate worship? <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, I know I'm running out of time, so I'll be quick. I just wanted to run through a couple of final pieces for you. These codices have been mentioned a few times, a couple times this today. Uh, Codex Alexandrinus is not a canonical list, but it does have the entire New Testament in it. And if you look, you can see the collections that I've been talking about in my paper. Codex Sinaiticus, which is dated to the early fourth century, um, has the fourfold the fourfold Gospel in our order: Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It has Paul's letters. What's interesting is Hebrews comes between 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy. You've got the book of Acts, and then you've got the three pillars, James, uh, Peter, and John, and then James's brother Jude, and then you have the book of Revelation. Notice that they also have the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermas. Codex Alexandrinus um, a little, was copied a little bit later, But another ancient codex, um, you have the fourfold gospel in the canonical order, uh, you have the book of Acts, you've got the three pillars, you've got Paul's letters, Hebrews is between 2nd Thessalonians and 1st Timothy, you got Revelation, and here you get 1st Clement, 2nd Clement, and the Psalms of Solomon. Okay? I just want to point out, though, that do you notice that in these two codices, these extra writings come after the New Testament writings? And not only that, but the two are different. They're different books being added to this. And so what you see here is uh, a discernment, I think, of a, the unique authority of these New Testament writings, as well as perhaps other writings that were helpful for the worshiping communities uh, that produced them. Also, uh, during the Donatist controversy in Africa, um, That was another impulse to clarify what scripture was and what scripture wasn't. Uh, During the controversy, um, people who handed over sacred writings were called traitors, and we read that um, a certain bishop of Carthage named Menzurius, when the Roman authorities came to the church, he actually switched the scriptures in his church for heretical writings and gave them to him gave him gave them to the authorities to burn. Which is pretty funny, I think. <laughs> so, um, yeah. This is a bit more esoteric, but um, I want to cite Robert Wilkin. Uh, he writes Christian thinkers were not in the business of establishing something. Their task was to understand and explain something. Uh, He describes the Bible as the linguistic skeleton for the exposition of ideas. Quote, exegesis was theological and theology was exegetical. I've read through the church fathers through these centuries, and I can validate what he writes. All you have to do is read these early Christian writers And you could see how they soaked up the New Testament. They imbibed Jesus. They imbibed Paul. Yes, some of the smaller books don't show up as much, but they drank the spirit of these writings. And you can just tell that it shaped the movement for what it became. The New Testament before the New Testament came from apostles, associates of apostles, brothers of Jesus, and maybe a prophet. Apostolic authorship was one of several criteria, not the only criterion. We see them distinguishing the New Testament writings from heretical writings, um, realizing some were pseudepigraphal. Um, They had authority long before Constantine. Long before Constantine. They shaped the church that recognized the canon. These writings were used in catechesis preparing people for baptism, that's union with Christ, and worship. And finally, they entered the canon not arbitrarily or through politics, but mainly in these three groups, the fourfold gospel, Paul's letters, and the three pillars. Thank you.